This is Dear Analyst, episode 23, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about how to calculate average trends across uh, values in Excel. And it's been almost a month since the last episode, episode 22, been on quite a long uh, winter holidays and New Year break, just got back from overseas, and I'm just trying to get back into the flow of things, getting back into work, so uh, hence the long break in between episodes, so um Hopefully you all had a happy holidays and new year and ready to learn more about Excel, data analysis, and everything in between. So today's episode is actually revisiting a blog post I wrote back in early 2017. And the title of the blog post was called Calculate Average Trends in Excel. And so I'm actually going to be revisiting this blog post because someone recently left a comment on the blog post um, about the methodology I use, which made me re-examine and question my original methodology for calculating average trends. So the gist of this blog post is this: you have a bunch of va- a bunch of value across um, time periods, and you need to figure out what the trend is in terms of the average increase and decrease in order to figure out and forecast what a future period value would look like. And so I argue in this blog post that you find the change in in values, that you find the increase and decrease as a percentage basis across time periods, and then you average out those increases and decreases to find kind of the average rate of change. And you take that number, multiply it by the last period in which you have data, and then you get the answer, which is the projection. Now, in the blog post, uh, I have a screenshot of an example of this in Excel. So um, this example will probably be more clear if you bring this up on your phone and uh, open up the screenshot of the Excel file I have. Um, But the idea here is that you're finding an average of increases and decreases, and it's not going to be perfect. And this person left a comment saying that... um, you should not, this is basically his comment. He says, I caution people against putting too much stock into creating a general trend with this method. Taking an average of an average can give you some strained results because the annual changes are not weighed. And well, first of all, uh, I didn't, I don't know if I corrected him, but I wasn't taking an average of an average, but rather an average of the, the rate of change, the increase and decrease between values over the time periods. And he gives, this person, he or she gives an example of some time series data in which the last value in the list is significantly lower than the first value. So for instance, if I'm looking at my Excel file here, let's say I have um, four values and they represent four different time periods. So, so from t- 2017 to 2020, I have four different values. Let's call it sales. 2017 value is 100. 2018 is 250. 2019 is 120. And then 2020 is 50. So the the idea, the concept that this person brings up is that 2020 sales is 50. 2017 sales was 100, so there was a 50% drop from 2017 to 2020, but the average um, rate of change in sales across these four periods was actually positive 13.2%. 
And the reason for that is because in 2018, sales increased from 100 to 250, and then decreased from 250 to 120 in 2019, if you look in the screenshot. And so he, this person brings up the idea that this is kind of counterintuitive, where if you look at the most recent data point, it's so low compared to the initial starting value. Um, and maybe it's also low compared to other values in the time series. But when you take an average of all the increases and decreases, it comes out to a positive, a positive number, which is counterintuitive. And I mean, to me, this is kind of like why you, why we love Excel, because you can uncover these trends that wouldn't ordinarily come about if you were to look at just like two data points or two time periods. Um, but this person does make a point in that the proper way of figuring out what um, trying to forecast, because basically what I'm going to do is taking this through 13.2%, multiplying it by the latest data point I have, the most recent data point, my most recent actuals, which is 50 sales in this case, and my 2021 forecast will be 57 sales. Is that correct? I don't know. But the point is, is that the average of the increases and decreases feels wrong because the most recent data point is so low compared to the other time series of data. And in my blog post, actually, I don't talk about discrete values. I actually talk about percentages. So in the blog, I mean, my original blog post in 2017, I'm actually looking at different countries' um, tax revenue as a percent of GDP. And so the only way they can figure out whether or not, so a separate question I was trying to answer in the blog post is if you have percentages as your, as your values and you want to figure out how to forecast the, a future period, how do you do that? So similarly, I took the increase and decrease in percentages over time and I apply that increase or decrease in percentages to the last year I have a value. So in, in the screenshot in, my, in, this, in this episode, I have percentage of the GDP, GDP as 6.5% for 2017, 4.5% for 2018, 8.5% for 2019, and then 5% for 2020. Similar pattern where 2020, the most recent data point is really low compared to all other three years. But the average of the increases and decreases is actually 5.6%. And so the forecast for percentage, for percent of GDP for 2021 would be 5.3%. Is that right? Maybe GDP as a percentage will decrease since we see a big drop off in 2020. We don't know. I mean, I think going back to what this original commenter talked about was I would probably weigh the years differently, maybe based on the number of units sold or some other variable to essentially weigh the years differently so that you know where the trend is. Alternatively, if you have this more data points, you could um, create a basic linear regression and try to figure out, um, are there is there a line that goes through all the different values to help you figure out and forecast what future values would look like. So, this commenter definitely brings up an interesting point about forecasting. Getting an average of increases and decreases is not necessarily the best way to find the trend. Um, there's definitely much more uh, scientific ways of finding the trend, but when you only have one number per time period, sometimes this is the best you got. 
right? And then the rest of it is kind of like qualitative commentary about like, well, actually the number is not correct because we know for, for instance, like we're closing a bunch of stores, therefore sales will definitely decrease in the following years. Another interesting, I think, error that many analysts might fall into is when you see percentages as a as your value, um, instead of taking the rate of change in the percentage, you might just take the absolute change between time periods. And then that actually leads to a different type of error because now you're not comparing apples to apples across like different countries in this case when you're looking at the percentage of GDP. And so it's a whole different type of um, error. I would recommend just reading the blog post to see to read more about what this um, this means. Um, but yeah, I think if you are in a position of forecasting future time periods of data, uh, would be curious to hear how you have used historical data to help inform you to forecast future values. I did a ton of this type of work when I was working as an analyst in an FP, FP&A role, financial planning and analysis. And a lot of it is just taking um, rates of change and applying that to previous values or taking quarter on quarter, year on year changes and applying that to previous values. Um, to plot, to account for seasonality, the, the year on the quarter on quarter change probably helps rate of change probably helps the most because you can capture seasonality in your business, especially if you work in like retail where <clears throat> you know a lot of your sales come in, um, you know, during the winter time for the holidays and maybe there's a slump in the summertime. I don't know. Um, but there's many different ways to calculate um, trends that you can help forecast future results. So I will take a Please take a look at the screenshot because um, the example in this episode will make a lot more sense once you look at the screenshot and also look at the original blog post with the comment um, from 2017, calculate average trends in Excel. Okay, so that concludes this uh, Excel portion of the episode. And I want to talk about two episodes that from other podcasts that I've listened to that I want, that I really... Um, with some interesting ideas I wanted to call out. Uh, the first one is from one of my favorite podcasts, Software Engineering Daily. It's actually from a rather old episode. Well, I guess old in terms of podcast time. <laughs> but this episode was from October 4th, 2019. And the interview was with uh, Cortland Allen from Indie Hackers. Who, and for those of you who don't know, Cortland Allen also runs a, a podcast called um, the Indie Hackers podcast, which is a podcast based on the Indie Hackers website, which I really love. Um, if you love starting new businesses and just playing with different new business ideas, Indie Hackers is the place to go. And uh, around minute 47, um, they discuss Cortland's fascination and joy of playing StarCraft, also one of my favorite computer games I've, I started playing back when I was... Gosh, maybe eighth grade, ninth grade um, when I was growing up. And he, the, 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 um, I believe Mike is the name of the guy that is, that runs Software Engineering Daily. Let me just double check. Software Engineering Daily. Pretty sure it's Mike. I listen to so many episodes. I can't, can't imagine. I can't, I can't believe I forgot what, um, it's Jeff. Jeff. Okay. 
So Jeff interviews Corland and he asks him about what he has learned about business from playing StarCraft. And Corland answers a few answers in a really, really um, interesting way, which made me think a lot about how I, what I've learned from playing StarCraft. And he says a few things along the lines of how StarCraft either has taught him about how to do, um, work hard because in StarCraft you have to really practice and uh, work hard to get better, or maybe his, or maybe he already had a penchant for working hard and that skill set carried over into playing StarCraft. Um, regardless of what it is, there's so many lessons you can learn from playing StarCraft, at least when it comes to building a business or a startup. And um, stay tuned. I actually will be right. I actually am in the process of writing a long blog post about um, things I've learned from playing StarCraft and also reading what other people have learned from playing StarCraft. It's a little bit of a meta blog post, but keep a lookout for that blog post. Uh, but a few other things that he mentions about playing StarCraft, which um, I find very um, relevant to working on startups and ideas and projects is this idea of iteration and tight feedback loops. In StarCraft, you are, you play, I mean, usually a good game will probably last 15, 30 minutes and sometimes like maybe like 30 seconds if the person rushes or cheeses and you get a quick, you basically quickly learn like how, whether or not you're going to win or lose or you know, linger on in the battle and the game um, after just 15, 20, 30 minutes. And so as the game progresses, you have to quickly alter your strategy and change your strategy depending on the circumstances. And Cortland re relates this to starting a business where in the business world, if you're working on, let's say, a startup, um, you probably have to wait months or years in order to see or experience any feedback about what you should be doing next. Should you be um, fixing bugs? Should you be working on new features? Should, be you, should, should you be entering a new market? Those types of decisions are months and maybe years in between, whereas in StarCraft, it's condensed down into like a minute. And so you can quickly iterate on your ideas for how to build your army, build your base, uh, scout, attack, harass, all these different things that you have to do and... Um, strategize in StarCraft. Um, so I think that kind of ability to think on your feet and think on your toes in a short amount of time um, really helps you in the business world because you definitely have more time in the business world, but um, it definitely you definitely have to be open to iterating and changing your ideas, your thoughts, your strategy um, as, on an ongoing basis as you get new information about the business environment, just like as you get new information about your opponents and the map in StarCraft. Um, so yeah, that was a really interesting blog, really interesting episode because, um, you know, I love the Indie Hackers podcast and the Hackers website and it's really refreshing to hear um, Corlin Allen talk about his love of StarCraft and all the different lessons that one can learn about business from playing StarCraft. The second episode I want to talk about is from Another favorite, um, also kind of similar to the Indie Hackers podcast, but the Product Hunt Radio podcast. And this is from November 13, 2019. And uh, the interview is with Mike Vernal, who is a partner at Sequoia. And around minute 40, <coughs> excuse me, Abadesi asks Mike about his uh, big bet and thoughts about the no code space. And 
I'm obviously a big, big believer in the no code movement. It's kind of a new moniker that's been applied to all the new no code tools and applications that have come up um, where I currently work at Coda. I mean, you could consider this as a no code platform to a certain extent. And Abadesi asks Mike about why he believes in the space and where he sees things going. And he mentions a few stats, and I'm not sure how accurate they are, but I'll just list them off right here as he says, talked about them in the in episode. About 20 to 30 million people in the world are considered software developers. So it's a relatively small group of people who know how to do this highly skilled technical uh, job. And then in terms of the number of people that have used Excel or Google Sheets, it's 1 billion people. So it's a lot more people. And he's wondering how the building blocks of Excel haven't really changed since when Excel came out. And which, Excel technically was a a response to Lotus 1.2.3, which was even older. And so the idea here is that if so many people are understand how to write formulas and build macros in Excel, imagine unleashing these 1 billion people on no-code platforms that make it easier for you to build your own tools and workflows. And he also mentions how there's so many different SaaS apps now for headcount planning, for HR, for sales, for operations, and all these apps want you want want to become your system of system of, of record and your one place that all your data is stored. And inevit- inevitably, all the SaaS apps, you a business, I mean, including ours, we have so many different apps we use and tying the data together between all these different platforms ends up being a pain. What if there were platforms like Zapier to glue things together where you could integrate all your different data sources without having to be a software developer? And that's another uh, trend that he sees, that Mike sees in, this, in the workplace on how you can connect different uh, data sources and platforms together without having to know anything about how to build like an API, for instance, or connect it with an API. Um, so just overall, big, really, I mean, this is kind of like confirmation bias because I already believe in the no-code space. Actually, there's a really interesting article that came out, um, I think, a week or so ago, right after the, the new year, about the delusion of no-code. And I'll try to dig that up and link to it in the, in the podcast. Um, but it definitely shows you the counter-argument of... Um, why the no-code movement is kind of not all it's hyped up to be. Um, but I think overall, for me, I, I, I'm i not like, I definitely believe that people, there are a lot more people that can build tools that don't know how to code than those that can code, obviously. And yeah, that's kind of uh, the last episode I want to talk about. And uh, yeah, I think the next I'm not sure what I'll talk about in the next episode, but I'm going to try to, I think, talk a little bit more about the no-code stuff because I'm actually one of the co-organizers of um, the no-code meetup in New York City. And we'll be meeting more people and talking to more people about this in the upcoming weeks. And uh, yeah, didn't even think that being in Excel made me a no-code person, but apparently that's um, what... I am. Um, so might as well just accept that and go with it and meet others who probably are good with Excel and other no-code tools. 
Um, that is the end of the episode, and hopefully I'll talk to you again. Thank you.